The purpose of John's gospel is to show you that Jesus is the only Savior and that through believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. So let's open our Bibles to the gospel of John this morning. And our text for this morning is John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. If you're using a blue Bible from a chair near you, you'll find our text on page 907. We pick up today to, on what, what most refer to as John's epilogue. If you remember, John's gospel began with a majestic prologue. It drew us back to Genesis. Maybe you remember the opening words of the gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The prologue, if you remember, was filled with glorious theology and captivating direction for where John was going to take us in his gospel. And now, in the final chapter, we get a bookend with his epilogue, which is actually what we're going to be considering for the final two weeks of our series. And the opening of John's gospel actually gave us the reality that Jesus would be rejected by his own people, but he would be received by some. The epilogue of John's gospel presses us as readers and hearers to see the risen Christ and to follow him, that we might be the sons and daughters of God by faith those whom he described in chapter 1. And he does this in both a great and a small way. First through the miraculous provision of fish and next through the miraculous provision of forgiveness, which we'll see next week. Both moments served to press each of us to believe in Jesus and not reject him, but to follow him, whatever that may mean for us. Because for the followers of Jesus, the minimum for us, what what the base is that we receive for following Jesus is eternal life of glorious bliss with Jesus in heaven. That's the minimum of what we receive. Everything else we have from the Lord is extra. Everything else is extravagant grace. So we follow along as I read John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, 
bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some meals are memorable, aren't they? Either for the company or for the taste or for the reason of sharing a meal. The power of a good and meaningful meal can last a lifetime. Some of us like preparing the food. Others of us just like consuming the food. But I bet you probably have a memorable meal somewhere in your past. And it can be good or bad. Some meals are memorable because of the pain associated with them. For instance, the food following a funeral may be memorable, but the event surrounding the meal is heavy. Or the spread at a wedding. It only adds to the celebration of a new covenant entered by the bride and groom. One of the most memorable meals for me was my first date with Carrie. Now, before you think I'm so sweet or romantic, yes, that is true, but our first date got weird. She's laughing because she knows it's true. And Carrie would say the same thing. We went to the classiest of classy restaurants for our first date, the Olive Garden. And we were enjoying ourselves around the gargantuan bowl of salad. We all know this, right? I see that hand. That's good. And we were enjoying ourselves when a stranger walked up and put his hand on my shoulder, placed a $20 bill on the table and said, God told me I need to pay for your dinner. Now, you need to remember $20 was solid in 1999, right? Okay, different. So we muttered our gobsmacked kind of thank yous, and he walked away. Now, here's the thing. Where do you pick up in conversation after that happens, right? Like crazy weather, huh? Or like, what do you think is going to happen with Y2K? Now, now my older friends will get that, that reference, right? But, but even though it was awkward in that moment, we recovered and the guy made a solid investment because here we are decades later with two kids. It was a powerful 20 bucks. And the meal was memorable because of what was taking place around the table. I have a pastor's friend who says his wife's greatest dream is to have a massive Christmas meal with all their kids, grown and grandkids presents, and he thinks she'll just die from happiness during the meal. Because like, it's just not going to get any better. She just wants to go to heaven right then. See, what I'm driving at is the fact that what we just read is so unremarkable and so common. And yet, in its unremarkableness, it's stupendous at the same time for the weight of what is happening. It's really just a seaside breakfast. And yet, this, this breakfast is infused with tremendous significance. 
And as with so much of John's gospel, the tension builds throughout the different sections as he piles on the proofs and evidence for you and I to believe and trust in Jesus. And at the same time, in this text, John will remind you that you do not believe in a Jesus of your making, of your imagination, but the glorious Son of God who took on flesh to redeem his people. That's where I want to start digging into the text by seeing first Jesus takes the wheel. No, he wasn't waiting for Carrie Underwood to give it to him. Nor was he waiting for his disciples. Jesus isn't waiting for you to give him the wheel of your life. If you are his, he has the wheel. And you need to know that you live on his terms, not your terms. So John begins this epilogue and brackets our text with a unique word that he's only used a handful of other times in his gospel previous to the moment. So if you notice, John opens with the statement, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. John's using this word revealed to show us that Jesus is the one doing the revealing here. His appearances to his disciples did not come on their terms or even when they demanded or desired to see him. But when Jesus, the risen Lord, determines to reveal himself, when it is the most effective time for him to do so. John takes pains by repeating himself that this is an act of Jesus revealing himself. That's such a unique and important word. So I like to read mysteries and watching mystery movies because I love that feeling of revelation. You know what I mean? Like, like you're piecing together the evidence, you're trying to watch together or read what's, what's happening that the author is left behind or, behind or the director or screenwriter has given you, and you're trying to conclude how the plot will be resolved. But there's that satisfying, shocking, or terrifying moment when you, the reader or the viewer, finally grasps what the author is revealing to you. The author knows the culprit the whole time. Or he knows the resolution of the tension. Throughout the story, he's in control of when you, the reader or the viewer, receives the knowledge that only he can give. Friends, as as John has made so clear in, in his gospel, the Son of God is in control. He is not pushed, cornered, or made to do what he does not intend to do. His death was his own laying down of his life, and his resurrection, likewise, is his taking his life up again. Now, as he interacts with people after the resurrection, John would have every one of us know that it was Jesus choosing to reveal himself to his people. This becomes even clearer as we move through the text. But John also uses the term at the end of our text in verse 14. So look look down at verse 14. It says, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, Don't let the passive tense fool you in that verse as John constructs this sentence from the perspective of the disciples. Jesus revealed himself and was revealed to the disciples. You know, another place where John uses this term, I think actually helps us. And I think his first Greek readers would have seen what he's doing here. So listen to this text from John chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. 
This is what John writes. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. The demand of Jesus' brothers to reveal himself, that's the word he uses, to show himself, was literally demand that he reveal himself in the way that they thought he should. But their reasoning was not from a heart of faith. You see, John has repeatedly shown us that faith in Jesus often didn't occur in sight of his revelation. Time after time, Jesus said and did what could only be explained by believing he that he was God in the flesh. And yet time after time, his revelation was met with obstinate unbelief. No, friends, Jesus would not be bullied or badgered into revealing himself. Here, as it was throughout his life, revelation is Jesus' own prerogative. And if what we saw last week seemed to be Jesus appearing in secret... This appearance was out in the open. So John is showing us that though Jesus was and is the word become flesh, he is now risen from the dead. Having given his flesh to be broken and torn for us, he now lives. The wounds are yet visible, but the Lord is now in his resurrected state. No more to be dismissed or marginalized. This is the picture in our text of a living king who is reigning. Which John puts in even more clarity with a fishing story. So next I want to show you how empty nets give way to eager hearts. Empty nets give way to eager hearts. So we see Peter decides to go fishing and six of the disciples decide to go with him. And this kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Peter goes back to what he knows. He's a fisherman, and it hasn't fully landed on him or the other disciples what they are supposed to do now. Now, we did read that Jesus commissioned them. We saw that last week. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. But from his suggestion return to fishing, it's clear that he and the other disciples weren't clearly grasping yet what Jesus was sending them to do. So they fish. And they fish all night. And John is very specific at the end of verse 3. Look at that verse again. But that night, they caught what? Nothing. We can do that. I mean, we can talk. That night, they caught... Yeah. They went fishing, not catching. All night long. And one commentator actually humorously noted, remarkably, the disciples never catch a fish in any of the Gospels without Jesus' help. And I looked it up. It's actually true. It's hilarious. I don't know if that's just self-deprecation, but they never catch a fish in any of the Gospels unless Jesus is there. Some fishermen. And it seems by the time Jesus stands on the shore, they're done. One scholar actually points out that it's not too far to push or stretch to see John employing a darkness to light contrast yet again. He's used this throughout his gospel. 
The dawn is breaking and the disciples have nothing to show. But on the horizon, the sun stands. As the dawn is breaking on the sea, the dawn of revelation is breaking on their hearts. The disciples did not know it was the Lord. Now, there's a lot of speculation if you look in, in, in trying to figure out why the disciples didn't understand. But we don't have to be mystical about this moment. We don't have to get weird. Jesus' resurrection body is the same, and yet it is also different. This is what the disciples and Mary experienced as they beheld him. Yet there is also the added fact that the dawn on the lake shore and the distance were likely a factor in their inability to recognize Jesus. They were roughly a football field away from Jesus on the shore. John tells us they were about 100 yards away. But now their trip is about to dramatically change. The disciples see this stranger who is Jesus standing on the shore, and the stranger calls out to them, Children, do you have any fish? Now that greeting, children, is is a greeting of endearment, not condescension. I was out to lunch with an acquaintance that I had not really talked to much before this past week, but we share a mutual friend. And my new friend said, are you guys, you guys still hang out? Let's check. So he took a picture of me at the lunch table and sent it to our mutual friend. I guess verifying the credibility of my statement. My friend responded with an enthusiastic text message. That's my boy. Now I'm not his son. Nor am I that much younger than he is but I actually loved the response. Because he meant boy as dear friend. Something similar is happening here. The word is literally children, but the New International Version actually gets the meaning more accurately by rendering Jesus' greeting as friends. Do you have any fish? Now, think about that. To soar tired, fishless fishermen. Kind greeting or no kind greeting? This question might be expected, but it's the last thing you want to be asked at that moment. So the matter of fact, no, from them is pretty understandable. Yet to their surprise, this stranger tells them to go back at it. He says, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. And he promises a catch. Did you notice that? You'll find some. Now, why they listened to Jesus, not knowing who he was, is not clear. Maybe they were just so tired and they thought, why not? We've gone all night. This stranger on the shore seems to think, There's fish. But they did. They listened. And they secure a payload of fish. Think about this. Such that one cast of the net wiped away all the weariness, struggle, and frustration of the previous night. One cast. Wiped away everything, even the frustration of a night of empty nets. That's so like Jesus, isn't it? 
It's so like our Lord to do this. Our pains, trials, and difficulties, they seem to go on forever. Some of you are feeling that right now. And sometimes the Lord meets us with such joy that the former time of pain and difficulty almost disappear like that. What's left is a memory of struggle that has been transformed by the provision of God. So I want to say something to you, my weary brother or sister, who feels like you're in the middle of darkness of night right now and you're throwing nets and they're coming back empty, 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 empty. Listen, weary disciple, in the middle of the darkness of night, the Lord will meet you with what you need. Now, I want to be honest, it may not be in this life. And it may not be soon. But when you lift your eyes to the heavenly shore and hear the greeting of your Savior, the pain and struggle and fear and brokenness of this life will be consumed by the unbreakable joy of the presence of Jesus. It's coming for all of us. He's coming for all of us. But for the disciples, why does he give them all this fish? The Lord was providing material proof for them again of who he is. Why did he tell them to let their nets down? Because he knew there were fish there. Perhaps he'd even brought them to sit right by the boat. He didn't time travel and pull out his latest Garmin fish finder, plug it in the water and say, no, 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 on the right, on the right. No, this is glorious sovereignty and supernatural knowledge. And the Lord Jesus provides lavish proof with abundant fish. At this moment, if you're following the text, it dawns on John, right? The disciple whom Jesus loved. And he cannot contain what he realizes in verse 7. He says, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Then Peter, who hears John's testimony and his brain catches up with his muscles, he drops the net, puts on his outer garment and bails on his fellow fishermen and disciples and just starts swimming to the shore. I mean, don't, mess, don't miss that. There's a, there's a lot there that we might miss. This is a significant catch. This is probably a great payday for the disciples. It may not have been their biggest catch ever, but between Jesus and the massive catch, Peter abandons the fish to get to Jesus. This is what happens when our hearts are awakened to the beauty of Jesus. It doesn't matter but we have to leave behind. We just want to get him. And we just sang a few moments ago, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And the testimony of John is unambiguous, right? Why does he say it is the Lord? Because only the Lord controls the fish of the sea. Only the Lord can give his people what they most need. John's confession is rich with theological depth and insight, no matter how brief it is. 
And the disciples do not attempt to remain fishing. They don't keep casting for more fish. They follow Peter's lead, albeit they don't jump in the water. But they tow the net full of fish to shore to see Jesus. They were no longer eager to keep going, right? I mean, think about that. I, I haven't been, I've been fishing. I haven't caught many fish in my life. But usually, if you catch one, it feeds the continued desire to keep going. Because maybe you'll catch another one. I don't know. I hear these things happen for people. Not for me. But these disciples have just thrown their net and they don't even bother to cast it again. They're just, we'll take it and go see him. They keep the fish there. Towing it to Jesus, they go to shore. They just didn't want to keep fishing. They were done. They'd rather go be with Jesus. Which gets us to our final thing. A memorable breakfast. A memorable breakfast. So the disciples make it to shore where Jesus is waiting with a charcoal fire. Notice the details that, that John includes. It's a charcoal fire, fish and bread. And they are invited to break their fast with the Lord, to breakfast with the Lord. The Lord inviting his people to a meal with him is one of the beautiful themes of Scripture. Yet the theme of eating with other people, celebrating the Lord, is also a theme we see throughout Scripture. Festivals marked by feasts, seasons marked by meals of celebration. We are a people who were designed to eat and yet, meals are unique at times, aren't they? Around the table, strangers become friends. Neighbors forge bonds. Forgiveness is given and received. Milestones are marked. Joy is shared as plates are passed and glasses filled. Meals can be intimate affairs as we sit across from another person opening ourselves up to them. And Jesus invites his disciples to a meal he has prepared for them and asks them to bring some of the fresh fish they've caught, which gives John the opportunity to point out two details that are worth noting, because he notes them. First, they caught 153 large fish. Now, Silliness abounds with people trying to read a deeper meaning into the number of fish caught. Like, it's funny to read. I'll leave it at that. But let me give you the secret meaning here. They caught a lot of big fish. There you go. The number 153 is significant because it's yet another detail John includes to add specificity to his account. If there's some deeper meaning to 153, he doesn't tell us what it is. I think he's just pointing out the greatness of Jesus. The second detail he notes in verse 11, look at verse 11. He says, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. That statement assumes something. It assumes that under normal circumstances, that many fish of that size would do what? Tear the nets. 
But here the nets hold under the massive weight of this huge catch. Again, there's speculation about what John is doing by including this detail other than the obvious odd survival of their nets under such stress. But the reality is that these two details are for our benefit, adding a ring of truth to this account. But also, Jesus is just piling up evidence for his identity in all of these small details. Evidence that's actually going to inform the conversation that they have over breakfast. So after Jesus asks them to bring some of their fresh fish to prepare, Peter, in what accounts to, amounts to a, a significant demonstration of strength, pulls the net ashore. And now, fish is prepared. It's cooked. And Jesus, who prepared the meal for them, invites them. Come and have breakfast. Now what's remarkable to me is how normal this whole event seems to Jesus. His moving throughout this narrative is as if nothing crazy is happening. While his disciples are rightly in awe of what's taking place. Jesus just seems to be walking on the beach, giving his friends a massive catch, then taking time to prepare a breakfast that he will eat with them just like it's some normal day. It's not a normal day. Jesus has made the normal exceptional. He has taken the common and spilled his glory all over it. God in the flesh provides food, prepares the meal, then feeds his friends. This isn't your basic fish taco breakfast, right? This is the risen Lord doing everything for his weary disciples. Can you see what is happening here? This whole account reflects the nature of God toward his people. We can do nothing for ourselves. We have strength, yes, but our strength fails like clockwork every day because we have to sleep to recover. And we are utterly unable to provide for ourselves. We are dependent creatures, and praise be to God of heaven who gives life to his creatures. What's more is he gives us new life to those who come to him through his son, Jesus. This whole account is an illustration of what theologians refer to as God's providence for his people. As a church, we actually confess the reality of God's providence in our statement of faith, namely the article on the true God, which includes this statement. We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, an infinite intelligent spirit, the maker and supreme ruler, maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. He has made the earth, church, and he rules the earth. He made the fish and governed their travel to the net. Why? So that he could prepare a meal in the presence of those he loves. I mean, I I love to cook, mainly to smoke delicious meats. It's a growing hobby for me. 
And to be honest, I watch too many barbecue YouTube videos in my spare time. Just ask my family. But what I love is making food that other people enjoy. So we had some of my family in town last weekend, and I got to prepare food for them twice, and I loved to do it, and I loved that they loved it. When you prepare food for others, you are serving them in a tangible and kind way. And here, Jesus takes the time to prepare the fire, to procure the fish and the bread, to get more fish from his disciples, to make them a meal from the fish he provided them. John does not want you or I to miss who's in control in this situation. Who's overseeing this whole moment? It is the risen Jesus. Then John takes us from all these outside details and and invites us into internal thoughts. The disciples were still in what we could best describe as a state of uneasiness. John doesn't tell us one reason why, but probably because there's a lot happening under the surface in each of the hearts of these disciples. But what John does say is that they all shared a settled knowledge and a burning question. So look again with me at the end of verse 12. It says, Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. They knew it was the Lord, but still they wanted to ask him. Doesn't that seem kind of weird at first glance? Why not ask? Well, there's some helpful language here in our text. Notice the word dared in the verse. That's unique. It carries the sense of challenge or defy. So the question that John is saying they didn't want to ask is that they had a desire to ask is that, are you really the Lord? It's what they wanted to ask. I mean, we might think, how could they be confused? He's sitting right there with them. And this points us to see that the Lord Jesus, though the same rabbi who had walked with them day by day, whom they had seen arrested and some had watched crucified and buried, was right there before him, yet he had changed. The resurrection wasn't simply a resuscitation. It was a transformation. Jesus was still Jesus, even recognizably so, and yet he was different. And the disciples, even in his presence, were struggling against the desire for verification. Are you really Jesus? They wanted to ask. But they wouldn't dare. See, some of you still think this way. You think that if Jesus walked into this room right now or had lunch with you this afternoon, that you would never doubt the existence of the Lord again. Or ever doubt that Jesus is truly who he says he is. Yet, here, the disciples who have just participated in the unimaginable are having an internal fight of faith. They knew it was the Lord, 
Yet they struggle with the desire to ask a question that Jesus wasn't answering. They're fighting to believe in this moment. The same way you and I often fight to believe. The evidence is all around us. The Spirit is within us and working in and through us. And we still find ourselves questioning it sometimes. Is He real? Is Jesus really the only Savior? Friend, brother, or sister, if you have those whispers in your heart, you're in good company. These disciples who knew down to their bones that this is really the Lord were struggling with sinful doubts and unbelief that was trying to overcome the reality of the moment. But church, hear me. Isn't it great to know that the darkness cannot overcome the light? That's what this text reminds us. They had experienced a long night after a series of long nights, but here as the dawn broke with the smell of fish and bread baking on a charcoal fire, as they had breakfast with God in the flesh, the light outside and inside was beating back the darkness of sin and death as the resurrected Son of God handed them fish and bread. They didn't dare ask because they didn't need to. This was Jesus. They could rest and enjoy breakfast with their risen king. With their risen king. I mean, what a meal. What a moment. So I wonder if you're here right now and you're struggling with disbelief and doubt. The disciples and many of us, your fellow Christians, know what that is like. The world outside us and the sin inside us pushes us toward disbelief. But we can come to texts like this and be reminded that our faith is not baseless nor fanciful, but rests on the solid shoulders of our risen Savior. Doubt grows best in the dark. I wonder if some of you might need to be so bold as to share your struggle with a fellow member of the church. If you're dealing with darkness that threatens your hope, why linger on your own in this? Church, we have given ourselves to each other as members of this church to bear one another's burdens and to exhort and encourage as occasion may require. If you struggle and you are silent, why stay that way? Why not begin to open up about your struggles to others who have committed to care for your good? You know, we, we talk about church membership regularly here because we believe it's what the New Testament plainly teaches. If you examine the New Testament, we don't see churchless Christians. Boiled down, church membership at Redeemer are the words we use to describe a Christian's relationship to the church. If you're not related to a church, then you are outside of the normal patterns of the Bible. We believe in belonging to a church as a member is a means of spiritual protection and growth. It defines our responsibilities to each other in the gospel and serves as a means for us to help one another in the midst of struggle and to rejoice in the midst of happiness. It's actually how Jesus designed his whole church thing to work. These disciples would remember this meal together and they could encourage one another in the hard times with reminders of, no, he's risen. Keep trusting in him. And church membership isn't a direct application of anything in this text, 
Yet the implication for the value of belonging to a community of faith is on display as the disciples partook of a shared meal with their Savior. How beautiful it is then that Jesus not only made breakfast for his disciples and gave it to them, but he's made a meal for us. This seaside breakfast wasn't the Lord's Supper, though some of the language bears resemblance. It's a different meal. But for us as disciples of Jesus, we are invited to a table together as well. You see, Jesus marked the most significant event of human history with a meal. Before he died, he shared a Passover celebration with his disciples and instituted a new symbolic practice to remind his followers of the gospel regularly. He took the bread and the cup, two unremarkable common things on their own, and infused them with symbolic weight when Christians gather together to celebrate. Because when the church celebrates the supper, we proclaim Jesus died for our sins on the cross. He rose from the grave, canceling our guilt, and has given us life through his resurrection. We're looking back at the supper, but we're looking forward as well to his coming. In the supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember our past, and beloved, we remember our future in Jesus. The disciples shared a memorable meal with Jesus, but church, we share a memorable meal together each Lord's Day. And that points to a great meal where we will all, like the disciples, sit around the table of our king and break bread with him. When our faith has become sight, we will feast with Jesus. So as we approach the supper, let me pray, and Gary will lead us in celebrating this together well.